Well, I just want to reiterate what Blaine said. I, I was super blessed uh, with your gifts from last week and the cards that you wrote. They were very, very kind and ministered to me in my heart. Uh, it really blessed my day on uh, Monday as I just sat in my office that morning and read through those cards. It was a huge encouragement to me. So uh, thank you uh, very much. Um, it is one of the most astounding stories in all of the Old Testament, and arguably one of the most glorious manifestations of the glory of God. I want you to, to go back in your mind, those of you who are, who are here when I preach through Exodus, uh, hopefully will remember, and maybe some others just remember from your reading of God's word over time. Moses in Exodus is, he's been leading the Israelites through the wilderness, and he is begging God to go with them. And he says, if you do not go with us, the people will not know that you are a God of grace who is for us. And the people will think they have not found grace in your sight. And so God replies that he will go with them. But he says, because you, Moses, have found grace in my sight, I will go with you and the people. And it's at that juncture, at that point, that Moses asks a question. A question that in some ways was audacious, risky, terrifying, presumptuous, bold, and shocking. And you may remember the question. Moses says, show me your glory. It's an incredible question. It would be, I was thinking about it in our context, like a farmer in Iowa knocking on the White House door, should he get that far, and say, can I please spend the night here? Can I have a sleepover? Seems shocking. But God, unpredictable in many ways, says this to Moses. I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But God makes his provision. You cannot see my face because no man can see me and live. And so God tells Moses, go up on Mount Sinai. I'm going to hide you in the crevice. I'm going to put my hand over your eyes and I'm going to pass behind you and you will see my back. That is as much glory as you can handle. And we can only imagine uh, what that was like for Moses. And significantly, as God's glory is revealed there, It is defined by his character. As God passed by Moses, allowing Moses to get a glimpse of his glory, it was then the characteristics of God that shone forth, not the vision that Moses saw. It was what he heard. You can follow along on the screen, this response. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in the goodness and goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And the point is, what is the glory of God? Full goodness and truth. Grace and truth. 
And you may remember when Moses descended off of that mountain, his face shone like the sun so that the Israelites could not even look upon him and he had to wear a veil. And as he descends from the mountain, Israel then receives the instructions of building the tabernacle. And fascinatingly, the last six chapters of the book of Exodus that follow this are all on how to build the tabernacle. How to build it. And then God's promise to go with them is realized. Because as the tabernacle is completed, at the last part of the book of Exodus, the glory of God descends upon the tabernacle in such a marvelous display of God's glory that Moses himself could not enter the tabernacle for the presence of God resided there. The glory of God went with his people and the people knew that God was with them. We're going to see this is incredibly important as we continue in the book of John. So turn to John 1. I'm going to start in verse 1, even though we went through verse 13 last week. As we're going through the prologue, these first 18 verses of the book of John, I want us to read the whole prologue again one more time as we keep all of this in context. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Now, as I've said the last two weeks, the first 18 verses of John is considered the prologue. It's called the prologue, and it basically summarizes everything else in the book, and everything else in the book points back to the prologue as support for what was said in the prologue. And so, as we worked through this prologue, now we've seen the Word was in the beginning, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was the light, He was the life. He came to the world, the world did not know Him. He came to His own, the Jews, and the Jews did not receive Him. But the good news, as we saw last week, is those who do believe and receive Him are called the children of God, given the right to be called children of God 
For salvation, John ends verse 13 with, is not of man and anything we do, it is of God. And then we come to this astounding statement, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the first thing on your outline this morning is behold the glory of Jesus. This is the last time in this book that John will use the term logos for Jesus or the word. Remember, word refers to the fullness of the revelation of God through Jesus. Jesus is the purest revelation of God. He has always been with God, reigning in glory, majesty, power, and unapproachable light. He is the one through whom everything was made that has been made. The word is full of indescribable, unfathomable, insurmountable, unexplainable glory. He is the glorious one. The angels in heaven worship him and the demons tremble in submission before him. He is the incomparable one who, as Tegan read earlier, holds all of creation together. He upholds it all. And that word became flesh. It's astounding. Absolutely astounding. It's not insignificant that the word John uses here for flesh is is a crude, normal, unflattering word for humanity. Jesus did not become superhuman. He wasn't like Superman, who comes as a savior with the perfect body and perfectly toned abs and the undescribable chest and the flawless facial structure. No, Jesus took on flesh. He took on human nature with all of its flaws and weaknesses. He became genuinely and fully human. In all ways human. With the exception of one thing. Our sinful nature. This is why the virgin birth was necessary. You see, Jesus did not set aside his divinity to take on human flesh, but rather he added human flesh to his divinity. Augustine stated it this way, man was added to him, God was not lost to him. These are high theological things that we must wrestle with. Because as I said, when we first started the prologue, it is so easy to go to the left or to the right and dip into heresy. This is important to understand, for the scriptures continually call Jesus God. It's not insignificant that the prologue begins and ends with the word was God. And then it ends with the only begotten God. But this is also critically important for our salvation. Because in Jesus being fully human... In all the ways that we are human, he could be our representative. But in being fully divine and fully God, he could take on our sins, for no man could do that. And he could suffer the wrath of God for us. Thus, the word becoming flesh is essential for our salvation. Now, this is a deep and profound mystery. How could the word add humanity to his divinity and so many reject it 
because they can't understand it. Jesus must have just been a really good human, above average, really great teacher, had some good things in there, loved the red letters. Or maybe he was mostly God that just seemed like he was human. But no, he was fully God and fully man. Scripture will allow no other notion. I love what Wayne Grudem says about this in his systematic theology. He says, those who find the doctrine of the incarnation, that's, that's Jesus adding humanity to his divinity. Those who find the doctrine of the incarnation inconceivable have sometimes asked whether Jesus, when he was a baby in the manger at Bethlehem, was also upholding the universe. To this, the question, to this question, the answer must also be yes. Jesus was not just potentially God or someone in whom God uniquely worked, but was truly and fully God with all of the attributes of God. He was a Savior who is Christ the Lord. From Luke 2.11, those who reject this as impossible simply have a different definition of what is possible than God has, as revealed in Scripture. To say that we cannot understand this is appropriate humility, but to say it is not possible seems more like intellectual arrogance. And yet this astounding truth the word became flesh beckons us to come consider the love of God and the humility of our Savior. It beckons us to look and see this profound grace and mercy. It calls us to humbly accept how little we know of the divine and eternity. It beckons us to worship. The word became flesh, as we just sang, so all glory be to Christ. We're going to sing a new song here in a little bit called Sing Me the Song of Emmanuel. And the second verse states this. Come we to welcome Emmanuel, king who came with no crown or throne. Helpless he lay, the invincible. And I love this line. Maker of Mary, now Mary's son. Oh, what wisdom to save us all. Shepherds, sages, before him fall. Grace and majesty, what humility. Come on bended knee, adore him. It's an astounding paragraph of the glory of Christ and the incarnation. Wayne Grudem, as he wraps up his teaching on this, states this. He says, it is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection. And far more amazing even than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God would become man and join himself to a human nature forever. So that infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. We are dealing with incredible truths here. The Word became flesh, a profound miracle and a profound mystery. This glorious truth only builds upon itself. 
in John in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Now, right now, as soon as John read that or wrote that and the readers of who were Jews read that, there would be an immediate flashback. A flashback that would lead to a light bulb moment, an aha moment. I understand. The word dwelt is the same Greek word for tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. You see what John is doing here? He is talking about one of the most glorious manifestations of the glory of God in the entire Old Testament and saying this was pointing to Jesus. This was pointing to Jesus. Jesus dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. And just as God dwelt in the tabernacle in the wilderness with Israel and the Israelites saw his glory, so Jesus dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory. Leon Morris is accurate, I think, when he states this. It is implied as God formally manifested his presence among his people in the tent which Moses pitched. Now, in a fuller sense, he has taken up residence on earth in the Word made flesh. This is astounding. Friends, don't ever believe the lie that the Bible is impractical, boring. Or a tale of two gods. The Old Testament God and the New Testament God. The glory of God in the tabernacle was astounding. And we read that text in Exodus and we think, oh, if only we had seen that. The glory of God in the tabernacle. And yet it pales in light of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. John and the apostles, when they looked at Jesus, lived with Jesus, ministered with Jesus, served with Jesus, spoke with Jesus, they saw the glory of God. They saw the glory of God. They saw the full disclosure of God in the Word made flesh. The same glory that Moses saw of God is the same glory that John and the others saw Only they saw it in even more fullness than even Moses did. So we have to ask the question, is this how you see Jesus? Is this how you see Jesus? Are you in awe of him? Do you see him as the glory of God, the purest revelation of God? Pastor Kent Hughes, I think, is right when he says this. Our spiritual growth is inextricably bound up with the size of our vision of Christ. Now note what marks the glory of Christ here in this text. Look again at verse 14. We beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, let's move back again to the Exodus story. When Moses saw the glory of God, what did he see? Well, let's look at a verse that was there that we read earlier, 34.6 of Exodus. 
And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Do you see the connection there? The glory of God is described as goodness and truth. And what did the John and the apostles and those who believed in Jesus see when they saw his glory? Grace and truth. Same thing Moses saw. Friends, this is our unchanging God. God is an unchanging God. He is full of loving kindness and truth, full of goodness and truth, full of grace and truth. And John writes here, he was full of this, meaning he was complete. There was, he was lacking nothing. There was no area of grace in which he was deficient. There was no area of truth that he had yet to learn. In Jesus is a fullness of grace and truth. And thus, we must know that God, in turn, deals with us with perfect grace and perfect truth. We receive from him the fullness of his grace, the fullness of his truth, and thus, likewise, we are called to exemplify both grace and truth. I think here of one man in a, in a previous church that I was in and when I was on staff there. He, he served in our church and he was very active in our church. But then as a result of an investigation, it was found that he had broken the law significantly and was arrested for a crime in his past. It was something he had done prior to, to coming to our church. And, and we at the church and leadership had to wrestle with, how do we deal with this man with both grace and truth? How do we do this? And so we communicated to him that he should not fight his sentence, for he was guilty and admitted he was guilty, and that he should go to prison, but with a Christ-like attitude. For the glory of God. And he went to prison. Leaving behind his wife and children. And so in those months. We cared for his wife and children. We wrote letters to him. Elders of the church went and made a long drive. A couple times to visit him. And when he got out a year or so later. We welcomed him back. It was a very difficult situation. Where we had to wrestle with grace and truth. And a passage that's been very helpful for me in this is Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3, verse 3. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. That's that concept, grace and truth. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of both God and man. And this is admittedly difficult for us. And yet we're told here in Wisdom literature, which means in general, this is a general truth, that when we function well with grace and truth, we find favor in the eyes of God and also man, mankind. This is beautiful because it reflects the glory of God and the majesty of Christ. But this is so hard. Some of you lean towards truth. Bring the truth to people. Dole out the consequences. Say it like it is. 
There's often little regard for tender care for people and compassionate, fervent love for people. It's all truth, baby. Bring the truth. And some of you lean more towards grace. Give them another chance. Hold back the consequences. Don't confront the sin. See them in the best light possible. Often an avoidance of difficult conversations. The handing out of or allowance of consequences. You want to be gracious. And here's what's the really wonderful thing. Most of you who lean one way, if you're married, have married someone that leans the other way. (laughs) And this is God's kindness to you. (laughs) It is. And so often I see couples and they think, man, he just needs to be more truth. She just needs to be more truth. He needs more grace. She needs more grace. No, God in his kindness brought the two of you on either side of the spectrum together because one needs to grow in grace and the other needs to grow in truth. And God has brought you together to make that happen. It's his kindness. And so how do we do this? Because this is hard. How do we bind grace and truth around our neck? Well, so often we pull Scripture out of context and we miss what's being said. How do we bind truth and mercy around your heart, neck? Well, look at Proverbs 3.5. It'll go there. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. How do you bind mercy and truth? You trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And you lean not on your own understanding. Because it's difficult. So as we come to verse 15, we read these words. And John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Not only did the apostles and John and others see the glory of Jesus, the word became flesh, so did John the Baptist. And he witnessed of him and he cried out regarding Jesus. And John understood the glory of Jesus because he says he came before me. Now, why would John the Baptist state this when, A, John was born first, and B, John started ministry first? Why would John say that? Well, here's the astounding thing. John understood that Jesus, though born after him, had always existed. And here's something to marinate in your mind and maybe make your brain mush. John knew Jesus had fashioned him in his mother's womb and that he was in existence because Jesus willed it to be so. John was there because Jesus created him. It's an astounding thing to consider. No wonder John would say, he is preferred before me. He made me. I might have got here first, but he made me. No wonder John would say, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. No wonder John would say, I am not worthy to loosen his sandal. No wonder John would testify, this is the Son of God. 
He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received. And grace for grace, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Brings us to our next point on your outline, walk in the grace of Jesus. Consider here what John is saying. Through believing in Jesus, we receive the fullness of Jesus. We don't get most of Jesus. We don't get part of Jesus. We get all of Jesus in all of his fullness. And in so doing, we become participants in the fullness of Jesus. We receive his glory. We receive grace and truth. We are given the glory of the word become flesh. And that just sounds weird to us. Wait, how do we receive the glory of the word become flesh? Is that an overstatement? Well, actually it's not because it's what Jesus said in John 17. As he's closing up his prayer before the cross, he says this, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So not only do we receive the fullness of Jesus, John writes here, we receive grace for grace. Now that's a strange statement. What does that mean? Well, without going into all of the details surrounding it, The most common meaning of the word translated for here in between grace and grace is instead of or in the place of. Thus, it it probably should be read grace in the place of grace. But what does that mean, grace in the place of grace? Well, I think verse 17 helps us answer the question. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Thus, what John seems to be saying here is that the incredible grace that came through the law and through Moses is undeniably true. It was God's grace to choose them for himself. It was God's grace to deliver them from Egypt. It was God's grace to go with them in the wilderness. It was God's grace to come upon the tabernacle and dwell with them. It was God's grace to reveal himself through the law and prophets. But as great and marvelous and wonderful as that grace is, there's a grace that replaces it. The grace that comes through Jesus Christ. Remember, as as we talked about light a couple of weeks ago, John often uses terms that aren't opposites, but building upon. Remember, there was other lights, but Jesus is the greatest light. Likewise, there is other grace. But this grace through Christ is greater. The grace of God is seen in the tabernacle and God dwelling with his people is surpassed by the grace of God dealing and dwelling with his people through Christ. The new tabernacle is greater than the old. In this we see a theme of God's grace that I think flows out of this statement of John. Grace is 
unending. It is a well that won't run dry. It is a river that never stops flowing. When we lived in California, one of the strangest things to me coming from Montana was that rivers didn't have water in them. And to me, growing up here in Montana, rivers meant water flowing, flowing. But in California, it did not mean that. A river meant a river bed where once in a while water would flow. And I remember one large river that was flowing along where we lived. It was about the size of the Clark Fork minus the water. And it was used for horseback riding and for off-roading and jeeping. Uh, I played airsoft down there with kids from the youth group I led. But every once in a while, a lot of rain would fall and suddenly the river would flow again. And in fact, this past winter, it, it rained so much there that that river was almost going over the bridges, which would have been astounding to see. More than it had flowed in decades causing much damage, but I guarantee in a few months it will be dry once again and people will be driving down it again. That's not how God's grace is. It doesn't come and go. God's grace is an endless river that never stops flowing, bringing grace after grace after grace after grace. And this stands here. As John is saying, this great grace is replaced by this grace, stands as a great reminder that God's grace replaces earlier grace. The grace we had for yesterday is replaced by the grace for today. And the grace we have today from God will be replaced by the grace we have for tomorrow. And the grace that we experience upon coming to faith in Christ will be replaced with the grace we experience when we go to be with him forever. Grace replacing grace. And the more we grow in the knowledge of the grace of God through Christ, the more we will see how desperate we are for it and long for it. Paul would write in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now notice what he says here. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Don't set aside the grace of God. But walk in this grace. Ask for more grace. The trouble with us is we often don't recognize how dependent upon God's grace we are. And we rarely ask for grace. As one author stated talking about prayer, we spend more of our prayers asking God to make our circumstances more what we want and to make our circumstances more comfortable than we do asking Him for more grace. should be asking for more of God's grace, not setting it aside. Pastor Kent Hughes says this, I doubt if any of us have as much grace as God intended. Meaning we're just living fully on the grace of God. 
You see, it's only as we strive to know more of God's grace, seek more of God's grace, and endeavor to live in His grace that we will then in turn be able to give grace to others. When we fail to extend grace to others, it reveals a lack of knowledge, understanding, and application of God's grace in our own lives. But as we receive God's grace through Christ, and we grow in God's grace, and we grow in the understanding of God's grace, it will lead to us becoming more gracious people. Well, let's look at verse 18, the last verse of the prologue. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, or God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. So the last point on your notes here is see God through Christ. Here's something I've found in my life and and in the life of, of many others. See if this resonates with you. We tend to gravitate either more towards God or more towards Jesus. And often I have found those who are more bent towards truth tend to gravitate towards God. And those who are more bent towards grace tend to gravitate towards Jesus. And it seems like we're more comfortable either with God or more comfortable either with Jesus. But struggle to be comfortable with both. Now look more closely at verse 18. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. This really is a closing statement of the Word, the Logos. John writes, no one has ever seen God. And you may say, well, what about Moses or what about Isaiah? Well, those were only partial glimpses of God. Not God in His full glory. No one has ever fully seen God because that person would immediately be dead, God says himself, unable to withstand the glory. But Jesus was with God and always was with God. In John 6, 46, he says, Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father, referencing himself. He has seen God. However, The only begotten God, which is the better translation there rather than son, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. This word begotten is significant. It refers to unique, the only example in his category. But it also refers to firstborn, thus pointing to the reality that Jesus is the first of a new humanity to be glorified. And here we're reminded how the prologue began. Verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Verse 18, The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. The Word was God. But this word bosom here now is an intimate word, describing intimate Knowledge. Deep relationship, deep intimacy, mutual love. 
And then out of that perfect knowledge of God, Jesus declared God the Father. This word declare is a word of precision and thoroughness. It's to describe and explain, to bring forth in its fullness. Jesus has the glory of God in all of its fullness, and Jesus intimately knows the Father, and therefore Jesus makes known and reveals the invisible God. He fully knows the Father, and so therefore can make the Father fully known. As Colossians 1.15 said, which we read earlier, He is the image, Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The night before Jesus was crucified, after they shared the Last Supper together, and they're in the upper room, just the apostles and Jesus, they begin to ask him questions. John asks Jesus, Who's going to betray you? Peter has a question too. Where is Jesus going? Thomas has a question. How do we get where you're going? And Philip then asks a question. Notice this. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? You see, Jesus is the purest revelation of God. The perfect reflection of God. He reveals God We know God because of Jesus. God is revealed to us as we understand Jesus. D.A. Carson writing here says the emphasis of the prologue then, as he's concluding his thoughts on the prologue, the emphasis of the prologue then is on the revelation of the word as the ultimate disclosure of God himself. And so we discover When we look at Jesus, we see God. And when we look at God, we see Jesus. It's a false dichotomy to prefer Jesus over God or God over Jesus. Because Jesus perfectly reveals God. And God beautifully discloses himself through Jesus. This is the astounding reality of the Word became flesh. Is this how you see Jesus? Or are you more like Philip? Jesus, show us the Father. Are you stuck in thinking God is a certain way and Jesus is another? Do you shy away from God but gravitate towards Jesus? Or do you struggle with Jesus and gravitate towards God? See this and wrestle with this and rest in this. Jesus is the ultimate disclosure, as Carson says, of God himself. Jesus would say this in John 10, I and my Father 
are one. And so, as we now swim, so to speak, out of the bay of the prologue and into the depth of the ocean of John's gospel, beg of the Lord God to help you to know Him. Beg of Christ to help you to know Him. Pray and ask the Lord, show me Jesus. Show me Jesus that I might better know my God and my Father. You know, several times Paul prayed for for people to grow in the knowledge of God. If you look at his prayers, oftentimes he's praying for people to grow in the knowledge of God. And so let's do the same thing. Let's strive to grow in the knowledge of God by His grace to know our God, our glorious God, full of grace and full of truth. In John 12, when Jesus was ministering in Jerusalem, some Greeks, Gentiles, came to Philip and they cried out, Sir, we wish to see Jesus We want to see Jesus. May this be our cry as well. We want to see Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. For it is your revelation to us of these glorious truths. And God, as we have now wrapped up the prologue and will swim out into the ocean of John's gospel, we ask that you would show us Jesus, that we might better know you. Father, I pray that you would help us to grow in our knowledge and understanding of you as we continue through this book. And Lord, as we're constantly confronted in this book of believe in Jesus, I pray that those who do not know you would come to know you. And I pray even this morning, if there is one here who has not believed and received Jesus, that they would do so. And Father, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper here in a few minutes, it is another picture of Jesus, and I ask that you would show us more of Jesus as we take the Lord's Supper together, being reminded of the suffering of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ for us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten, full of grace and truth. Father, help us to see the glory of Christ and in so doing, see the glory of you that we would be moved to love you more and love each other better. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.